uh, excited to uh, to continue our series in the Gospel of Mark and to uh, to dive into our passage today that we we just heard uh, read. You probably heard this saying: You can tell a lot about a person by the company that they keep. You can tell a lot about a person by the company they keep. Now. This can be used in a number of different ways. Um, on, on one level, when the, when the direction of influence perhaps is you perhaps influencing uh, others um, in a way towards a positive direction or towards Christ, um, it can be a healthy thing. It can also be a healthy thing to guard against some of the influences that we allow in our life. Uh, but it's also possible to use this phrase uh, in a way that misjudges people um, based on the company that they keep. Um, and in fact, that's what we see happens uh, with Jesus. And today, uh, as we dive into our passage, we're going to see how Jesus keeps company with sinners. And that is shocking on one hand, and yet it's good news on the other hand. Uh, because if we ever are to have the company of Jesus, he has to keep company uh, with sinners. Um, and, and yet it's shocking because... Uh, the expectation of, of who Jesus was and what Jesus would do didn't match with the religious leaders of the day, particularly the scribes and the Pharisees that we'll see uh, in our passage. But I just want you to consider just an overview of what uh, this passage says in regards to Jesus' relationship with sinners. It, it shows us in verses 1 through 12, we'll dive into all of this in a moment, but it shows us that Jesus has the authority to forgive sinners. Jesus isn't threatened by the presence of sinners because he actually has the answer for sinners. Uh, we also see that Jesus eats with tax collectors and sinners. He sits at their table and dines with them. We see that Jesus even calls a tax collector who would be known as a sinner in the eyes of those around him to follow him, to be amongst his disciples. And, and then Jesus, in summary fashion, says that, in fact, he has come for sinners, and so, uh, just in these 17 verses, we, we see this, uh, this clear message that Jesus has come for sinners, and that Jesus keeps company with sinners. And we've been going through the Gospel of Mark, and uh, we've seen in Mark chapter 1, the kind of introduction to Jesus' ministry. Mark uh, kind of gets to the point, the most, uh, one of the most frequently term, used terms in the Gospel of Mark is immediately. He moves from one thing to another, immediately it goes to this, immediately the, these things take place. Um, and in chapter 1, we see uh, his uh, precursor, the precursor of John the Baptist, preparing the way for Jesus, Jesus' baptism, his uh, time of testing in the wilderness, and then his announcing of the gospel and inviting people to repent of their sins and to believe the good news of the gospel, of the kingdom of God. And then uh, we, we moved into seeing how uh, Jesus begins to demonstrate his, his authority and his power to, to heal. We get a glimpse of his kingdom through his healings, and there's this constant interaction between Jesus' teaching and Jesus' miracles. And, and we saw that those two things can't be connected. His miracles aren't just like a fancy, cool little thing over here, and, and then his teachings over here. No, the, his teaching is of, of uh, preeminence. It's his priority. He says, I must go to other places to preach, for this is why I've come. And yet he heals and casts out demons. And, uh, and later we'll even see he raises the dead, and all of his miracles go to validate his message. It goes to validate who he is and what he declares. It points us to the truthfulness of his message and invites us to embrace Jesus as our own Savior. But as we come to, to Mark chapter 2, we're going to see that uh, there's kind of a, a little bit of a new theme that takes place, and it's one of confrontation. It's one of conflict between Jesus uh, and the Pharisees, the religious leaders 
of the day. Uh, and there's a number of different kind of conflicts and controversies that arise. Today we're going to look at two of them in verses 1 through 12 and then 13 through 17 next week. Uh, Lord willing, Chris is going to teach through uh, the remaining three uh, that will take us into chapter 3. And all of them kind of follow a similar pattern. Jesus does something that is uh, somewhat uh, unexpected or even offensive to the scribes and the Pharisees. Uh, then uh, the scribes or the Pharisees begin to question or challenge Jesus. Sometimes they do it in their heart. Sometimes they do it vocally uh, to Jesus. Uh, and then Jesus ends up responding in such a way that actually silences the scribes or the Pharisees. And, and not only silence them, but ultimately uh, will end on chapter 3, verse 6. We'll see next week that it concludes uh, with the scribes and the Pharisees being so upset that they begin to plot to how to kill Jesus. Uh, and so it, within this... Uh, kind of section of conflict, we, we see Jesus continuing this theme of his authority. And we see his teaching and his miracles come hand in hand and go uh, together. We see Jesus' miracles confirming that he indeed has come to not only uh, free us from the power of sin and, and free us from the power of evil spirits and, and physical sickness, but to deliver us from sin and death. And, uh, and, and in fact, if you, you kind of see the bookends of this in our, in our section, in chapter 2, verse 10, uh, after, after Jesus um, kind of gives this scenario of what is harder, uh, healing this man, making him walk, or forgiving his sins, it says in verse 10, I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he told the paralytic, I tell you, get up and take your mat and go home. And then verse 17, concluding this uh, section today, Jesus says, It's not those who are well who need a doctor, but it's those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So here in, in our passage today, we see Jesus keeps company with sinners, and we're going to understand why that's good news. And the first thing I want us to see is that Jesus forgives sinners who come to him by faith. Jesus forgives sinners who come to him by faith. The, the scene is set in verses 1 through 4. Jesus has come back into Capernaum. He had been going throughout the surrounding areas of Galilee. It says preaching uh, the message of the gospel of the kingdom and healing and casting out demons is what we saw at the end of chapter 1. Um, and it says he's come back into Capernaum, and this is kind of like home base for him. It says that this took place, if you notice in verse 1, some days after he had gone out and was preaching. And, and when he gets back, it's like everyone uh, spreads the word uh, that he's home. Uh, I don't know if you remember. I remember in, in my childhood, I lived in an area where uh, there are a lot of houses that where we could see around us. And when a friend got home, you kind of knew when the friend got home. And it was like all, all, everybody that was waiting for somebody to get home, they all rushed to their house to see uh, if they could play. That still still happens in our home. When, when there's a friend that's out of town, they come home, it's like people rush uh, to, to go to, to figure out if everybody can play. It's, it's similar to that. Word gets out that Jesus is back in Capernaum, and people begin to gather. Uh, I don't suppose that they called them to ask if they could come over uh, or send them a text. It says they just showed up at his house, and, and they began to fill up, not only uh, up to the house, but uh, even around the house so that there was no room uh, for anyone to move. And it says at the end of verse 2, he was speaking the word to them. This is the pattern that we see throughout Jesus' ministry. He's speaking the word. What is the word? The word is the gospel of the kingdom, the message uh, of Jesus coming to rule and to reign and fulfilling all of God's promises. And and so we see Jesus' teaching. And because there are so many people, uh, it says that there was uh, there was no room really to move around. In verse 3, there's a group of people who want to bring uh, their paralytic friend to Jesus. And seeing that every, 
every space was filled. Um, they, uh, they looked around and they were like, well, it's not your day, buddy. Uh, we're going to have to go home. Um, no, they, they saw that it was difficult to get to Jesus. And so they said, okay, uh, let's, uh, let's climb up on the roof and drop you down through the roof. Makes total sense. Um, and uh, to us, we look at that and we're like, I mean, can you say insurance claim waiting to happen? Like, how can you go up on the roof and, you know, make a hole in the roof and, and go down? It says in uh, verse 4, since they were not able to bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him after digging through it and lowered the mat uh, on which the paralytic was lying. In that context, uh, most of the houses had roofs that were flat. Uh, and on that roof, there were some beams. And then over the beams were laid some uh, some reeds. Um, and uh, on top of those reeds often were then put dirt that would be packed in to kind of keep the rain out. And it wasn't uncommon for people to go up on the roof. Uh, it certainly perhaps was not convenient. If, in fact, this is uh, Peter's, um, Peter's house, I could just think of Peter's mother-in-law. She's like, uh, a few weeks ago, I was sick. I was doing terrible. Jesus came in, healed me. It was awesome. It was exciting. We had a big group. He's been gone for a week or two. Now he's back and somebody's digging out my roof. Jesus, you're going to have to go to another place pretty soon, right? Like, we've done enough in my house, you know? Like, I'm not, I'm not sure that I'm ready to host anymore. Um, and so, but it says that they dug out the roof and would have dropped him down. No doubt a spectacle and no doubt a scene, but they were determined to get their friend to Jesus. And what you see fundamentally is that this paralytic and these four friends believe that if they get to Jesus, Jesus has the power to do something to help them. Um, it doesn't tell us uh, necessarily all that they were thinking, uh, but it tells us uh, by, their, um, by their tenacity and by their uh, willingness to do uh, even what seems uh, uh, unexpected, they're willing to get their friend to Jesus. And then when they get their friend to Jesus, what we see happen is unexpected. What you would expect to see happen is that Jesus would be impressed by their creativity, impressed by their ingenuity and their willingness to get their friend to him. And uh, in an instant, Jesus could have spoken a word and healed the man. Um, in fact, we've already seen how Jesus has, uh, people have come to Jesus seeking healing and Jesus has simply spoken a word and healed them. But that's not what happens when this man comes to Jesus. Jesus, uh, the first thing he sees when he looks at this group is not that they were uh, that they were creative, not that they were tenacious, not that they were uh, uh, willing to do whatever it took, but what he sees, it says in verse 5, is he sees their faith. The faith of the friends and, and no doubt the faith of the paralytic as well. Jesus observes their actions and observes what takes place and, and sees faith. He sees that they believed if they got to Jesus, he had the power to heal them. They, they weren't just coming uh, merely uh, with a hope uh, that, that Jesus uh, might be able to point them in the right direction. They were coming because they believed Jesus could do something. They, they were coming because they believed he had the power to heal. But what happens is they bring this man to, to Jesus. This man has an obvious need, right? His obvious need is he can't walk. And his friends have gone through all of this in hopes that Jesus will heal him and enable him to walk. But Jesus, seeing his obvious need, decides to first address his ultimate need. And the ultimate need that this man has is revealed when Jesus looks at him and he told the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. His obvious need was that he couldn't walk, but Jesus addresses his ultimate need, which was the forgiveness of sins. Think about what Jesus is saying here in this passage. Jesus is saying that he knows this man's sin. 
whom he is now perhaps for the first time seeing. And yet he knows his sin. Secondly, he's saying that this man has sinned against him. Why else would Jesus be able to forgive his sins? It would be strange to you if you walked up to me and I didn't know you. And upon uh, our initial greeting, I said, it's nice to meet you. Your sins are forgiven. <laughs> you would say, you're weird. I'm going to exit, I'm going to ex exit uh, this uh, situation now, right? Like, how, how is it possible? Unless, as the Pharisees later conclude, that only God can forgive sins. So Jesus knows this man's sins. This man's sins are against Jesus. And we see that Jesus has the authority to forgive this man's sins. And if we zoom out and then just apply this to this paralytic man and we think about what this means to us and what the, the message of the Bible is to us is it says that we have all sinned. We are all in the place of the paralytic. We have all kinds of obvious needs or not so obvious needs, but we all have the same ultimate need because we're all sinners. And our sin isn't just a personal offense against uh, our family member or our friend or our co-worker or our classmate, uh, though it may certainly be against them, ultimately our sin is a personal offense against God. We've all sinned and our sin is an offense against Him. And not only that, we can't hide our sin from God. You know, it's amazing that it is possible to hide your sin from all kinds of other people. It's possible to allow sin to, to be covered up so that other people don't see it. But you can't hide it from God. Before God, we are exposed in our sin and our need for His forgiveness. See, our problem is that we've sinned against God and only God can forgive us. It wouldn't be as big of a problem if we had sinned against God, but there was some type of three to five step plan that we could get out of our sin. Like that's kind of the deal that we would ultimately like. But that's not the deal that God is willing to give us because his solution is not for us to work our way out of our sin problem, but his solution is for him to offer his son in our place for our sin problem. See, our problem is that we're sinners and only God can forgive us, but the good news is that God's solution is that he forgives us through coming to Jesus by faith. And upon seeing all of this, this man's sins being forgiven, the, the scribes, it says, were sitting there. Somewhat of an interesting statement. I don't know if they got to the party first or if they just took the positions of honor. Everyone else, perhaps, is standing with very little room, uh, but it says they, there they are sitting and questioning to themselves. In their hearts, it says that they say, why does he speak like this? He's blaspheming. He's dishonoring God. Who can forgive sins? but God alone. You see, the Pharisees, or the scribes here, were, were kind of the experts in the law of the, of the Old Testament. They were the ones who, uh, who would be looked upon uh, as the experts in the law. And uh, being as such, they, they, they ask the right question, but just come to the wrong conclusion. The right question is, who can forgive sins but God alone? The wrong conclusion is that Jesus must be blaspheming you see, Jesus granting forgiveness was a shock to them. They, they fully understood the implications of what Jesus is saying. They just couldn't fathom that God actually was present in Jesus. That Jesus was God in the flesh. That had, he had come, just as we are told in the Gospel of Matthew, to forgive people for their sins. His very name tells us that he is Savior. 
that he's the promised Messiah, that he's the Son of God, that God himself has come to grant us forgiveness of sins. But Jesus, and in many ways, there's a multifaceted kind of authority that Jesus shows. He, he shows his authority to, to forgive sins already. He's showing his, his authority over the human heart. He knows the thoughts of the scribes as they sit and question Jesus. And then he's about to demonstrate he has the authority to heal this man because he perceives in his spirit that they were thinking like this within himself and said to them, why are you thinking, this is verse 8, these things in your hearts, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk. Jesus answers somewhat uh, this silent question of theirs in a rabbinic style what's known as a lesser to greater argument, which is easier, he says. To say, that's the emphasis. What's is easier for me to say? For me to say, your sins are forgiven, or for me to say to this paralytic man, get up and walk? Well, the, the conclusion would be that it's easier to say your sins are forgiven than it is to say get up and walk because the outcome would be obvious uh, in the case of, uh, of healing this man. It would be much more difficult for that to be said because if it didn't work, then he wouldn't get up. And it would be evident that you didn't have the power to heal him. But if you said you forgave his sins, well, who, who am I to say that you didn't forgive his sins? He goes on his way and, and we're all good. But the, the more difficult thing to say is, is for Jesus to look to this man and say, get up and walk. But as I thought about this, I couldn't help but, but also think that Jesus' question is, which is easier to say? But uh, you have to step back and also think, which would be easier for Jesus to do? To speak a word of healing power? Or to be a substitutionary sacrifice to provide forgiveness of sins. That ultimately would be more costly. It's easy to say your sins are forgiven. It's much more costly to accomplish sins being forgiven. And Jesus, here in this moment, not only has the authority to heal this man from his physical um, physical disability from, from being paralyzed, but he has the authority to forgive his sins. This, this miracle, this act that Jesus does in many ways here in this moment, he grants forgiveness to this man. In this moment here in Capernaum, he grants forgiveness. But it would be on the cross that Jesus would accomplish forgiveness. Jesus, as he comes and heals, and as he, um, as he casts out demons, as he heals the sick, as he raises the dead, as we mentioned last week, all of these things are pointing for the kingdom to come, but they're also pointing in many ways to what Jesus will secure on the cross. The forgiveness that he offers this man in Capernaum is only secured through his work on the cross. Jesus forgives sinners who come to him by faith. And when we think about this truth, there, there are kind of two implications I want to press in before we move to the final passage. The two implications are this. Your sin isn't sovereign. Jesus is sovereign. And another way to say this is, your sin doesn't have to have the final say. Because Jesus has the authority over sin and to forgive sin, Jesus can have the final say. Here, this man came looking for healing, but receives forgiveness of sins. Jesus did address his obvious need, but he first spoke to his ultimate need. And in the same way, all of us are in that same boat, having the ultimate need of forgiveness for sin. 
And if you've yet to fully put your trust in Christ, it's easy to be overwhelmed by the fact that if, if you're honest today, there are things in your life that you know that aren't right, that aren't pleasing to God. It's easy to be overwhelmed by thinking about what, what can I do to fix my problem? How can I address that? How, I can't, it, it's like uh, in my own life, I, I'm prone to spill coffee on things. That's never me spilling water on my carpet. It's always me spilling coffee uh, on my carpet. It's always my kid's fault. Um, uh, I'm just kidding. Um, it, it's always my fault. And, and, and when you spill coffee, it's this, sometimes it's this overwhelming thing because you're like, man, I can't get it out. You do your best, you dab it up, and it all looks good. But then you come back the next day, and there it is. You thought you cleaned it. You thought you got it. You got to bring in the big, you know, machine thing, you know, that you rent from Lowe's or Home Depot to really get it all up. Um, and 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 it's like that with our sin. We're like, well, I think I got it. I think I, I think I've covered it up. I think I fixed it. And there the stain remains. And it can feel overwhelming. But the gospel tells us that your sin isn't sovereign. Jesus is sovereign over your sin. You can come to Him and receive forgiveness of sin. It doesn't matter how far you've gone. In your sin, it doesn't matter how far on you've gone from that sin and then it still creeps up and haunts you and feels like you can't escape it. There's forgiveness of sin for those who come to Jesus in faith. But I also want to speak to you as a believer because it's easy for us as believers to feel like once we've come to Christ for forgiveness and salvation, that then it's up to us and our best strength to keep on following Him. Then it's up to us to figure out our best, to pull up our bootstraps and to, to follow God. Yes, God desires us to walk in obedience and holiness. And yet we remain with a sinful, uh, a sinful nature that tempts us and draws us away. Not to speak of all the temptations that are outside of us. If you just leave us alone in a room long enough, the sin will come up within us. Um, but you put the temptations around us and it's magnified even more. And, and in all of that, it's easy sometimes to feel like sin has the upper hand. And, and sin, sin is able uh, to, to, to be the one that rules in your life. But when we come to faith in Christ, we, we come to Him and we, we place Him on the throne of our life. He takes the rightful seat over our hearts and rules and reigns. And anytime we struggle with sin, it's not because sin is too great for Jesus. It's because sometimes we struggle to fully lay it before Him and to walk in obedience and, and faith uh, that He is sovereign over our sin. Be encouraged. Not to allow sin to have the last word in your life. Because Jesus has the authority to forgive our sins. But there's a second implication that I, I think is important here. That, that I think as I read this, I'm challenged and I can't escape. And perhaps you've thought this as you uh, listen to this passage. And to apply it personally, it's this. That you know people who need Jesus. So challenged by these four friends of this man who are willing to go to great extents to get him to Jesus. And, and they know that they can't heal their friend. They know that they're not the answer for their friend. It's important for us to understand that too. We, we are not the answer for people's problems. You are not the Savior for other people. But we know who is. Jesus is the Savior. And, and the question I ask myself and I ask you to consider, are you the kind of friend who brings others to Jesus? Now, you may feel like, Michael, I have no idea what to fully say when I talk to my friends about Jesus. So, I mean, sure, I'll try, but I don't know what I'm doing. That's all right. I don't know that they fully knew what they were doing when they got to the house that day. 
Half the time, as I talk about Jesus with others, I don't fully know what I'm doing. I'm praying and asking, God help me to know what to do. But are we the kind of friends, are we the kind of people who bring others to Jesus? And maybe another question to consider, do you see people's ultimate need in their life as forgiveness of sin and a personal relationship with Jesus? You see, it's easy to get caught up in kind of just thinking myopically and what's right in front of us. And what I love about Jesus is he, he cares often for the, the obvious needs that are presented to him. And yet he always goes to the ultimate need of people. But we're tempted just to focus on, on maybe the obvious needs right in front of us. Now honestly, it's sometimes on the flip side, it's a good challenge uh, for, for the church. Sometimes we can be so focused on the ultimate need that we neglect to help obvious needs right around us, right? Those two things go together, not, not opposed to one another. And perhaps wherever we swerve off onto the ditch of caring about the, the obvious need as opposed to the ultimate need, or the ultimate need as opposed to the obvious need, we need to course correct and care about people's needs that are presented right in front of us, but also understand and believe that people's ultimate need, regardless of what, uh, what external problem they face, what external problem I have, my ultimate need is for Christ. My ultimate need is for His forgiveness. My ultimate need is for fellowship with Him. And so, as we think about what it means to be people who bring others to Jesus, we must understand that we can't save anyone. But if we know Jesus, then we know the one who has authority to save. So let's be friends who are faith-filled, believing that if we get our friends to Jesus, maybe it's in a conversation, maybe it's talking through a book of the Bible, maybe it's inviting to church, maybe it's having coffee and just trying to talk and understand where a person's at. Pray and ask God to open the doors and then show up believing that Jesus is the answer. And you don't have to have all the answers, but you can keep pointing them to him. Jesus has the authority to forgive sinners who come to him by faith. But then we're going to see, starting here in verse 13, that Jesus uses sinners who humbly follow him. It goes on to say in verse 13, after the man gets up, the people see what took place. They gave glory to God, saying, we've never seen anything like this. Time and time again, the scribes and the Pharisees may be uh, upset and scoffing at Jesus, but the crowds around are going, man, there is something different about Jesus. Uh, but it says now that Jesus has gone out from Capernaum there where he was, perhaps the same day, perhaps sometime later, it doesn't say, but it says that he went out again by the sea. This is referencing the Sea of Galilee. If you remember, Capernaum is like three miles from the Sea of Galilee, so about an hour's uh, walk. Um, and... It says that Jesus is out by the Sea of Galilee, and when he's there, um, just like he was at the house, a whole crowd comes to him, and he was teaching them. And so beyond all of this, though, it says that he was passing by. At some point, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, who was sitting at the toll booth, and he said to him, follow me, and he got up, and he followed him. See, the last time Jesus was at the Sea of Galilee, he called uh, Andrew and Peter and James and John to follow him. They were fishermen. And they left their work of uh, their family businesses of being fishermen, and they followed Jesus. And here once more, Jesus is by the Sea of Galilee, and this time he sees Levi, who's sitting at a toll booth. And this isn't like the toll booths where they take your dollar twenty-five for your four-wheel you know, vehicle uh, on the road. This is, like, uh, this is like an IRS agent, but not like the, the ones who help you do your e-file online. These are like the IRS agents who like repossess your stuff, you know, like so not exactly well-liked uh, and popular uh, with, uh, with the people. 
And so it tells us that, that Levi is sitting at a toll booth, a tax collector's booth. And, and the thing about tax collectors, part of the reason that they weren't alive is because the tax collectors often were, were Jewish uh, people. The two, two tax collectors we know of in the scriptures are here, Levi and elsewhere, Zacchaeus. Uh, he was a wee little man. Um, and, uh, and, and those two tax collectors, uh, though they are Jewish, uh, they, they work for the Romans. And so they're kind of seen as, as traitors. Uh, they're, they're seen as, uh, as, as kind of being swindlers and charlatans. Because what happened is the Romans would expect a certain amount of money from a region. And they would then send out tax collectors to collect that money in that region. But the thing about the Romans is they just wanted their money, and whatever money you wanted to get was on you as long as you got them their money. So they would charge whatever was needed for uh, making ends meet with the Romans, and then they would go a little bit beyond uh, and get a little bit extra for themselves. And uh, what's often the case in the human heart, they, they didn't just get enough you know, to, to have a decent living uh, down the road in Capernaum. They, they often took advantage of people and exploited people. And we know that in Luke 19... Uh, when Jesus calls Zacchaeus to follow him, uh, Zacchaeus, so convicted of his ways, he gives over half of his money to the poor because it says he exploited them while he was a tax collector. Now, it doesn't tell us that Levi does that, uh, but it, it does give you a sense as to how the tax collectors were viewed. In fact, in the Mishnah and the Talmud, which are uh, Jewish writings that would uh, come later, there's instructions uh, and, and kind of descriptions of the tax collectors at this time. They would be considered alongside the thieves and the murderers, is how they were uh, how they were thought uh, by how they were thought of amongst many Jewish people. They were often expelled or banned from gathering in the synagogue on the Sabbath with. Uh, with their fellow uh, Jewish people. They were uh, often disgraced by their family. Universally loathed is uh, what you could consider the tax collectors. We, we looked last week at how Jesus heals a physical, a man with leprosy uh, that was an outcast in society because of his disease. Well, if you think of leprosy in your mind, the, the tax collector is like a social leper. Uh, they don't have a physical disease uh, but based upon the work that they do and, and how, they, uh, how they are kind of in uh, cahoots with the Romans, they are seen socially as outcasts. And so it's shocking here as Jesus approaches this tax collector, that uh, Levi, that he doesn't give uh, a lecture on what he's doing. He doesn't correct him in this moment. Jesus looks at Levi and says, follow me. And it says that Levi did just what Peter did and Andrew and James and John. It says he got up and he followed Jesus. He followed Jesus. That, that word, to follow Jesus, we've looked at it before, and so I won't dig into it further here, but to, to follow Jesus is, a, uh, is the common invitation that Jesus gives. In Mark 8, uh, verses 34 through 38, Jesus will say, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. That's the invitation. It, it's not just like a, hey, come check out what I'm doing, Levi. No, it's, it's an invitation to turn from your life in your own way and to humbly trust in Jesus. And that's, that's, what's that's what takes place here. Uh, Levi maybe didn't even understand the full cost of it, but he left his tax collector's booth and he followed Jesus. Now Mark and Luke uh, call this man who was called by the Sea of Galilee, Levi. Matthew calls this same man Matthew. Um, and so most likely, Matthew and Levi, Levi uh, 
uh, also goes by Matthew, and Matthew, who wrote Matthew, would know who Matthew was, is the thought, uh, if you followed that. Um, and so Matthew is the tax collector, spoken of in Matthew, he's called Luke, and, and Luke and Mark, he's called Levi, and most likely is the brother of James, not the brother of Peter, but, or John, but the brother of, uh, of, of Matthew or Levi, who is the son of Alphaeus. And uh, later on in chapter 3, when Jesus lists his 12 disciples, he lists also a, a James, the son of Alphaeus, who is uh, most likely, that name is somewhat of a unique name uh, for what we know of this time, that most likely Levi and James are brothers. And this brother, who is a tax collector, Jesus calls him to follow him. And what, what's interesting is following uh, Levi's, leaving everything and following him, most likely, verse 15, it tells us that Jesus was invited back to Levi's house and there was some type of celebration that Levi invited all of his tax collector and sinner friends uh, to get together to, to hear who Jesus was and, and what Jesus was doing and how Levi was following Jesus. And it says in verse 15 that Jesus was eating with the sinners and the tax collectors along with his disciples, and there were many who were following him. Not just Levi who follows Jesus, but there are other tax collectors and sinners. The term sinners is at times kind of used as kind of a reference to like the common people of the land. But most likely because the, the, the disciples are mentioned alongside uh, the tax collectors and sinners, it's really speaking to the, how people view these people as the outcast, as the ones who, uh, who, uh, who really are uh, looked down upon and, uh, and kind of cast aside. And time and time again throughout the scriptures, you see Jesus being willing to keep company with sinners. Never condoning sin, never celebrating sin, but keeping company with sinners because he's the one who saves sinners from their sin. And when sinners humbly follow him, he uses them for his kingdom. And the truth that we see is in the kingdom of God, it's not your past sin that determines your usefulness to God. In the kingdom of God, it's not your past sin that determines your usefulness for God. It's your present faith and submission to Him that makes you useful to Him. Jesus uses those who are humbly believing and submitting to Him in His kingdom. I don't know if you ever feel paralyzed by your past. You could join Levi's club. But when Jesus looked at Levi, he didn't define him by his past sin. He defined him by his present faith and submission to him. And that's what made him useful to God. And that's good news that God uses sinners who humbly follow him. He not only does it here in Mark, but he continues to do it throughout the Gospels. And he continues to do it today. He uses us when we're willing to turn from our way and to trust in him. And in many ways, verses 16 and 17, I began there, but I now conclude there with this heart check. The whole point of all of this is not that Jesus came for some and didn't come for others. But the real question is, do you see your need for a Savior? Do you see your need for a Savior? You see, after doing all of this and Jesus calling Levi and dining with these tax collectors and sinners, the Pharisees, and scribes there saw what Jesus was doing, eating with sinners and tax collectors. And they asked his disciples, why does he do that? Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? They couldn't believe that Jesus would do that. They thought that a, a teacher of the law, that this would be below a teacher of the law. 
The Pharisees were, were people who, uh, who desired for purity. They, they, were, they, they loved the law. They, they wanted to protect the law and keep the law. They wanted others to keep the law. They, they did it so much. They desired so much to protect the law. In many ways, you can think of it this way. They took the commands of the law, and then they built a fence around it and said, don't break these things, so that in case you break these laws, at least you won't break the law. Uh, the, the idea of their, their desire and pursuit of purity, in many ways, you could say was honorable. But they often clashed with Jesus because they were so focused on the external that they missed the internal. They, they were so focused on their keeping the law and being pure that they didn't see a place for anyone who wasn't like them. That to be in, you had to become like them. And what ended up happening is that becoming like them is all about what you did, not about what was taking place in your heart. <clears throat> they complained, Jesus, why do you eat with sinners and tax collectors? And Jesus' response is simply that he came for the sick and for those who acknowledge their need for a Savior. And see, the irony in that statement is everybody is sick with sin. Everyone is in need of a Savior. The difference is that the tax collectors and the sinners who dined with Jesus knew they needed a Savior. The Pharisees couldn't see beyond their self-righteousness to see their need for a Savior. And, and when we think about what Jesus is saying here and the, the application of this to our lives, I, I want to encourage us to look at ourselves, especially as I speak to, to those who have put their trust in Christ. I think that it's easy to come to Jesus like a tax collector, knowing that you need forgiveness. But somewhere along the way, we start to live like Pharisees. Confident in our obedience and our track record with God, and then we become suspicious of those sinners. And what Jesus is doing here is he's reminding us it's not just sinners out there that need this message, though it's true. What he's saying to the Pharisees is it's the sinner right here that needs a Savior. And the question is, do we have eyes to see that we need a Savior? Do we have the humility to admit our sin and the willingness to trust and Jesus as the one who has the authority to forgive sin and as the one who uses sinners who humbly follow him. That's the heart check for all of us today. And to conclude, I, I want to I give you two truths, two exhortations, and two questions. Here are the two truths that I think we see in this passage. Number one, no one is beyond God's forgiveness, including you, including me. It's good news for us. No one's beyond God's forgiveness. And closely associated with it, but emphasizing something slightly different, everyone needs God's forgiveness. You see, the truth that no one is beyond God's forgiveness is a good reminder for the person who knows they're a sinner, but just thinks that Jesus doesn't have enough authority, enough power to forgive them for the sins that they've done. The reminder that everyone is a sinner in need of God's forgiveness is for the one who thinks that they've done enough and will be okay when they stand before God. See, God levels the field for all people, sinner, tax collector, and Pharisee alike, and says that everyone is in need of a Savior and no one is beyond God's forgiveness. My exhortation then for us as we think about this, and you think about it in your life, and I think about it in my life, and what I've been coming back to this week as I've reflected on this passage, is I don't want to ever get over the fact that Jesus forgave me of my sins. I don't want to ever forget what it was like realizing that 
that my sin wasn't on me anymore, that I was forgiven, that I was freed from the guilt and condemnation and shame of my sin. And it's so easy to be comfortable and familiar with that truth that, that we just keep chugging along and we forget. I never, I never want to get beyond the crowd's response when they saw Jesus heal this man and forgive him of his sin. They gave glory to God and said, we've never seen anything like this. I think that's, that's the encouragement, the exhortation for us today. If you're a follower of Christ, never get over the fact that Jesus forgave you of your sins. And if you never get over the fact that Jesus forgave you of your sins, alongside that, never get over the fact that everyone needs Jesus. As I mentioned earlier, it's easy to sometimes just focus on the obvious and the external needs of those around us. And at times, that's been neglected, and we, we need to focus on it uh, perhaps even more than we have. But the real danger is that we would forget the ultimate need that every person has so easy to think of the advice that someone needs for this or someone needs for that. But what's the solution to their greatest problem, to their greatest need, to our greatest problem? That answer is Jesus Christ. His death and His resurrection is the, is the, the answer and the solution to our greatest need. And then the final two questions that flow from all of this is who will I bring to Jesus? And am I available for God to use me? you can admit that you're a sinner and that God has forgiven you of your sins, let's be like these four friends who do whatever it takes to bring our friends to Jesus, knowing we're not the Savior, knowing that we're not the answer, but believing that we know the one who is. And then secondly, as we think about what God's doing around us, as we think about his plan, the work that he's doing in the world, Jesus came on a mission. And when Jesus came on that mission, he didn't just come and say, watch me. He ended up looking at some unlikely people, fishermen and tax collectors, and he said, follow me. The mission of God includes God using those who are available and who are willing to turn from their way and follow him. That's the invitation for us. I want, I want TCC to be a church filled with people who take sin seriously, who, who don't excuse it, who don't celebrate it, who, who see sin for what it is but who know that sin isn't sovereign because Jesus is sovereign and has authority to forgive sin. To be people who look at others and, yes, meet obvious needs, but, but always, always come back to the ultimate need of forgiveness of sin through faith in Jesus. I want us to be a people that open our doors wherever we may be and say, everyone, come. And come to the one who tells us to turn from our sin and to follow him. I believe God wants to use sinners who humbly follow him and that means that God wants to use you and me the question is are we available are we willing like Levi to say I'm ready to follow let's pray